Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com What's up, everyone? Welcome back for a brand new edition of Collider Ladies Night with someone I am thrilled to have on the show, Haley Atwell from Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. First off, huge congratulations and thank you for being here. I'm a big fan of a lot of your work and happy to cover as much of it as we possibly can today. Wow, what a what a privilege. Thank you. It's so good to be here. So you say it's a privilege, but the one thing I didn't warn you about on Collider Ladies Night is we start with a game. It is called Dicey Questions. Usually it involves a dice tower. The dice tower did not travel to New York with me. So I have eight random questions here and you have to pick three numbers and then whatever question they correspond to, that is where we begin. So what is your first number of eight? Seven. Okay. So we are kicking this off with my favorite question because this is one of my favorite movies. It's called Scream and there's only one question that can be asked for a topic that is Scream. What is your favorite scary movie? Oh, great question. Oh my gosh. You know what the first thing that comes to mind? It, it, it's uh, Let the Right One In, the um, the, the, the original, uh, because it was so inventive and, and like I felt kind of sorry for everyone in it, although it's like intense and you, you kind of shouldn't because they're vampires. But yeah, I just thought it was like, had that brilliant thing of kind of horror genre, but also like psychological thriller at the same time. If you like that one, I genuinely highly recommend the American remake. And then also they made it into a TV series, too, that was like totally underseen and undervalued, but was actually really damn good. OK, I'm going to check it out. Sounds highly good. Recommend them. All right. Your second number now. Number three. Number three is never again. What is something you did for a role that now makes you say, I am really glad that I tried that once, but I will never do that again. Oh my gosh. Oh God. It's really hard to Ooh, it's really hard. Um network television. <laughs> oh, we will get to that. Only uh, only because like the there's so many voices in it, it gets diluted down and I feel mm-hmm. like it becomes a bit like 
massed I, I don't mean to like because I watched network TV and I love it but my experience of doing it was like churning out stuff really quickly and I think like I'm so I'm such a sort of like reflective when it comes to work and characters I really love the time it takes to actually get involved in the character in the world rather than like churning out 15 pages of dialogue a day and exposition exposition I would say is the hardest thing to do as an actor because it's you're just delivering plot lines mm -hmm. oh i very much understand that yeah. all right you have one last uh number to pick here what is your final one i'm gonna go with number one number one all right so here's my my one mission impossible one on the list i'm calling it a uh, travel buddy so when you go on a big trip like what you're on right now you want to have really good company you want some good travel buddies around you and in particular i want to know what it's like going on a trip like this with tom cruise what is one thing about him that makes him a good travel buddy but then i also want to know something about yourself that you think makes you a good travel buddy Oh, okay. So I think with Tom, he's just got this insatiable amount of energy and it's, it's always present. He's always there to completely serve the, the fans and serve the movie. So you, you just know with him on board, that kind of leadership and that mentor, that everything, everything is kind of geared for you to have a really positive experience. And I love that because, you know, you're traveling the world and there's a lot of logistics and there's time zones to contend with. And he's such a sort of an advocate for taking care of yourself and pacing yourself, but also finding a fun, you know, a lot of fun in it. So yeah, without a doubt, that's for him. Okay, so what I what makes me a good travel buddy? Oh, I'm really good at recommending a podcast or a movie or a book. Um, so I'm, you know, anything that I'm excited about, I'm 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 happy to share with my traveling companions. Um, so I'll, you know, I, that will be sort of my contribution, I think. Okay, there's only one follow up question to that because I have a flight to LA coming up. What what is a, a podcast, book, movie, anything type of recommendation you would give? Me? I was really late to this, uh, but so you might have heard it already. But I, I was on a road trip and I listened to the true crime podcast West Cork. Ooh, I have not listened to that. Oh, good. Oh, my gosh. I was like, you know, one of those things where you just want to, you're like, oh, my God, let's, do I have enough time on this road trip to get through another episode of it? And it's that kind of thing. It sort of like takes over your world. It's, it's so well done, like really smart journalism. Oh, I'm into that. All right. We're getting into the meat of our interview now. So every single Ladies Night Conversation begins here. What was the movie, the performance or personal experience you had that first made you say to yourself, I absolutely have to be an actor and nothing else? Oh, wow. Well, it would be probably theater. Um, I saw a lot of theater as a kid. I was really lucky to grow up in inner city London and there was access also to cheap tickets at the time. So I was able to just, it wasn't seen as a, like a a highbrow thing that only certain people with mon you know, money to burn could afford. Uh, so access to really good theater, like the National Theater, the Royal Court, the Almeida, the Donmar Warehouse. I mean, I saw, so, you know, seeing like uh, Ray Fiennes' Hamlet was really kind of pivotal. It's so funny because I would kind of connect with the character regardless of their gender and be like, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. And there was something about when the lights would go down and this group of people in the audience would have this collective experience. And if it was good, you'd be all be changed by it by the end, like it was fully immersive. And the fact that it was live, you f I felt like I was kind of in the presence of like, how are these people that I don't know making me feel all this cool stuff and making opening up my mind? So I would always kind of, the, the theater really would be the place where I started to ignite my love or my understanding of the power of storytelling and also the power of language. 
I'm not following my little roadmap here, but I'm just curious, do you find a similar reaction happening with screen work where it can't be that collective response in the same room, but there's there's like something else happening when someone watches a movie or show that gives you that same satisfaction? For sure. You know, I think films are, whether I'm, you know, watching them at home or now more than ever going out to the movies, to the cinema to watch them. It's such a it's such a uniting thing. It's such a wonderful thing to share with your loved ones or friends. And when I go out to the movies now, it becomes much more of a, like an event. And, and I feel, again, it has a, if it's good, you know, I think that I, I watched a lot of some cla- more classical movies when we were filming mission and I was watching sort of lots of seventies heist movies. And so I was watching things like what's up doc, uh, Italian job to catch a thief, Thomas crown affair, paper moon, the train, uh, Shane, some Westerns in there and Ordinary People was in there. Broadcast News was in there. Tom and Chris McQuarrie would give me this kind of list of like the, what, the films that they love to watch. And so it ignited my sort of appreciation for really good classic storytelling that sort of transcends its genre. Um, yeah. So, you know, a, a good a, a good story well told is like there's nothing like it such a good movie marathon you just listed off there I love it (laughs) so you are inspired to become an actor at the time what did you think step one to becoming a professional actor was and now looking back is that a first step you would actually recommend to an aspiring actor or did you find something that was more effective along the way uh I was fortunate enough to when I was uh 16, we had in England, we had this, I did at, at, at the time think work experience where you go out for two weeks when you're 16 and you do an unpaid job in a, an office or somewhere in the kind of an, in the industry that you've told your teachers you're interested in. And I'd said, you know, acting. And so I got a um, this job for two weeks working as a casting director's assistant. And what was amazing about it is that I would sit there with a script and actors would come in and audition and then when they left, I would audition with them. So I got to practice doing scenes with actual professional actors. I was like, this is amazing. It was terrifying, but really, really useful. And then when they would leave, I would hear what the producer, the director, the casting director, what their feedback on it was. And what was so kind of surprising to me is you'd, you'd have someone come in who was amazing, who I felt like, comparatively speaking, I was like, oh, they've definitely got the job. And then it would be something as arbitrary as, yeah, but I don't know if they match the person we've cast in this role next to them, or maybe we need someone that's a bit older. Or, And the conversation was rarely about the how good the audition was in a way, because there was a sort of an understanding that anyone coming in was probably going to be really good. Um, and it just gave me that sense of going, oh, if I go out later on and do an audition and I don't get it, it was like, it's like standing at a platform and the train goes by and you go, oh, it wasn't my train. So that was put me in good stead to understand kind of how to take rejection with humility and with like a sense of ease. And my, the casting director at the time, he'd said to me, you know, if you want to be an actor after experiencing what it's like to see all these headshots coming into my office every day, if you still know that you want to do it and you know how kind of precarious the business is, then then go to drama school and start learning your craft and commit yourself to it. So I think think the next part of my answer would be the advice that I would give to anyone is get out of your own way as as opposed to being self-reflective about what you feel you want to do and how you want to feel and express yourself and think about how can I develop a skill set and a craft that either entertains, provokes, inspires, moves, um, delights an audience. And 
drama school, particularly the you know the classic drama schools like in London and I know New York has some incredible ones too, give you that foundation of a classical training where you're understanding language, but you're also understanding how to use your voice and stage technique and how to um, tell a tell a story live in front of an audience. It's kind of if you're attuned to it, it's going to give you feedback about how much you've got them. Um, and so, yeah, the, those two things. And I, I'm so, so, so pleased that I did that because it just gave me a foundation. That's such a beautiful answer to that question. I have I have many follow-ups. The first one, because I'll always take an excuse to talk about being a casting director because I don't think we celebrate that field in the industry nearly enough, whether it's through that work experience you had or just your experience auditioning as a working actor now. Is there anything about what it takes to be a good casting director that you wish more people knew? Something that you've appreciated in a good casting director that you would want to celebrate? Yeah, I, I would say... You know, I've been I have been really fortunate to meet brilliant casting directors who who really care. You know, when I remember going on to auditions for like commercials when I was in my late teens, just kind of starting out. You know, trying to trying to get. And I think I did a Pringles commercial. And I, the thing about the the ones that feel more about advertising is it feels a bit like a cattle call. Like the actors are sort of like in a waiting room and they're kind of brought in one at a time and you know it's very snappy and they don't really engage with you as a human being it's just like okay what's your name say hello to the camera say this line turn around off you go the next one's coming in and i and i so when i started after drama school and the auditions were for more um just quality of writing that required time and thought and emotional connection in the audition Having casting directors, I mean, I, I think of Kate Rhodes-James as one, Nina Gold as another. Um, there's, oh my gosh, there's, there's so many here in the UK. Gail Stevens. Um, uh, and they were, what kind of singled them out is that they, they took time with me. And when you came into the room, they, Priscilla John also did this, there was a sense of no one else out there was in the room. So you were coming in, this was your time. And they would say, you know, this is the, this is the breakdown. This is what the director's looking for. And do you want to rehearse it? And then they would either employ an actor to come in and read with you, or they were really good actors themselves. So, you know, when you have a casting director or an assistant, who's like, you are the love of my life. Thank God you're here. I thought I was going to die without you. And then you have to say your line, you're, you're kind of like, oh, it's not really giving you much. And I was quite sensitive to that. And so when you'd have someone who was reading opposite you, whether it was casting director or their assistant, who was invested in it and wanted you to do well, it, it, it for me as a younger, very insecure actor, made me feel like, oh, okay, I feel seen a little bit. So that's the that's what they're masterful at doing, I think, drawing out a good performance in an audition. Filing away more follow-up questions. I wanted to go back to college and ask one, because I love asking this, because sometimes studying a craft like acting in school is the right path for some and not for others. What was it that made you think you needed to get a degree in acting? And then I'm now I'm making this convoluted, but also what is something you learned in that program that you still find yourself using to this day? But on the other hand, what is something that all the schooling in the world never could have prepared you for when you hit your first set? Three, a great three part question. So first part of your question um, was about, remind me again. What, what made you want to pursue a degree in acting rather than just jump into professional acting gigs? 
for, well, I mean, from a, like a very practical point of view, I had no contacts in the industry and I was a shy kid and I was like bookish and nerdy and into philosophy. And I would start, I had started a degree in philosophy and theology at King's College in London. And I, as soon as I got there, I thought, I really like the subject, but this is three years of my life. And if I know that I want to pursue acting after this, this doesn't seem like the best use of my time or the, or the kind of, it feels a bit like my place here is I'm wasting I'm I'm the the part that the the position to study this is being wasted on me when other people should maybe should be coming in who'd actually use that degree so I I left early and that's when I started again working as a casting director's assistant and doing advert auditions and it was it was the casting director I worked with a guy called Jeremy Zimmerman who said to me I want you to come to the showcase of RADA and Guildhall and Central and Lambda. And I want you to see great students acting. And so I went to the showcase and it's when all agents are invited to see the final year of the, you know, people do monologues and duologues. And especially RADA, I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is amazing. These like 18 to 25 year olds, some were older than that having done a degree where you, the, their presence, their command of their voice, of their language, I was in awe of it. And I thought, I, I, want, I want to know how to do that. And I don't currently know how. And I know that if I go to drama school at the end of that degree, it's not about the piece of paper, the degree, it's going, agents are going to come and see me. And so that's going to naturally launch the step of actually having a career. So that was the first part of your question. What I learned while I was there, it's a safe space where you try lots of different things. You know, I'm playing an 80 year old. I was like 20 at the time and I'm playing a tree or I'm playing, you know, the color blue. Um, we did elements once and I was like fire for an afternoon. And that, you know, they, they seem to be the, the things that we like to mock drama schools for, but what you're doing is you're getting, you're, you're developing an understanding of your body as an, as an instrument and learning how to have the neutral actor's body, whereby after that you can adopt certain different sort of uh, physicality or different centers of gravity and different gestures that will convey a sort of through line of what who your character is for the audience. And I was also studying Shakespeare, so beating out the iambic pentameter and hearing rhythms of speech, and then reading lots of classical plays and going, what makes this a classic what why what are the themes in this that feel universal that transcend its time and then you're also you've got scene partners for three years where you're developing this trust as an ensemble where you're you're working out where your limitations are but also you're learning from each other so it's a really um it's it's really expansive you know definitely not comfortable definitely not easy and you know that's why I made as many mistakes as I possibly could, and got as painful feedback as I as, as anyone could have about certain things. Maybe my, the color blue wasn't convincing, um, but it set me in good stead because I think now what I've taken from that course is a deep, deep-rooted, unshakable work ethic, which is I'm here to serve the text or to serve the story. Um, this isn't about reducing the part to being me. So I have a moment where I can feel something. It's me working towards something outside of myself for in, in a place of service to the, or the custodian of that character that you're portraying. Um, and I think, you know, that, that puts you in as an actor in such good stead when if you're lucky enough to get 
you know, work consistently and, and the natural byproduct of that is your public persona grows or your, you know, the presence becomes a little bit more public, how to navigate that side thing, which is this thing called fame or this thing called celebrity culture, which never, never interested me because it was, it was an abstract and quite a toxic thing. It was like a weird popularity contest, which made me go like, I, I felt like I'd left the playground when I was, you know, when I left school, but here we are. Okay. And it did. And, and I also thought what it, what it does to the actors, it's a, it erodes their creativity because they become focused on themselves and how they're, you know, there is a, the, that line between who they are as people in private and who they are as contributing artists to the healthy civilization, um, it gets blurred. Uh, but I think if you know what your craft is, then that becomes much more distinct and you can compartmentalize. Here's a good follow-up to that idea. I like asking this question every once in a while because I'm fascinated by the idea of having like a breakout opportunity in Hollywood because we experience that a very different way than the person actually going through the breakout. And, you know, the the example that comes to mind for you is the MCU. If it's something else, definitely swap it in. But what is something, what's a misconception about what it means and what it's like to break out in Hollywood via a role like Peggy Carter? But then also, what is something that joining the MCU might have changed for you for the better? Yeah, I, I mean, my experience of shooting Captain America: First Avenger was like, like third, twelve or thirteen years ago. was was a really It was a really positive one. I love Joe Johnson, the director, and Luis D'Esposito and Kevin Feige. They're such they're such good guys, and um, Victoria Alonso as well, who's like a real you know the female powerhouse of Marvel. Um, and Chris Evans was so lovely and like more of a kind of a serious not not serious because he's a goofball like me, but. He's so talented, you know, he's a, he can play the piano and he's an incredible tap dancer aside from this, you know, superhero thing that he's doing so brilliantly. But because I hadn't read any comic books, I, I went into the audition as, again, it's going back to the experience of working as a casting director's assistant and then in drama school, which is you learn your lines, you go in, you show up on time, you become present to the environment that you're in. You pay attention to what you think that they're, what they're asking of you to do and to try, but also come in and offer things, and and just in, start engaging um, as if you've already gotten the job. You know, start talking about the character, the story, the world of it. And so that felt, you know, I'd, I'd done so much theatre by that point and period dramas and TV adaptations and a couple of smaller films that by the time I came into this, I sort of knew that I was going to approach it in the same way. It was just to the outside world, a seemingly bigger machine. Um, and then I think with, you know, with Peggy Carter, it becomes like sort of a slow burn, really. You're, there, there are people that would see me on stage and not see that film, or people would see me in that film and not think I'd done anything else. And and so again, you're, you're like, you can't meet the assumptions, the expectations, the projections of the world onto you. You just do the best you can. And it's, it's, it's so lovely, you know, there wasn't like some game plan of going like, I'm gonna make sure Peggy Carter like steals this, that she lives forever. It was just like, do your job, do it well. And um, so that sort of expanded really over time. And there's this, again, this like, this, it's a, it's a delight and surprise to me that she's lived in the consciousness of many fans of the, of the first film, um, and, and you know, and, and even till now. Um, 
So I kind of, you know, wear it like a loose garment in a way. You know, I think for me, I have different things that I did that were sort of pivotal for me as an actor because it was, you know, for example, like playing Major Barbara in Major Barbara by George Bernard Shaw on the Olivier stage at the age of 24 next to Sir Simon Russell Beale and having to hold my own to 1800 people a night without a microphone and do it and do the run of that and go, okay, that that's something that's, that's something, you know, only, and the only people that were there were the only people that are going to see it. There's not a life beyond it. Um, Howard's end to me as well, because the, you know, the writing by Kenny Lonergan was so brilliant. It was like this beautiful kind of musicality throughout the whole script that I just felt was so um, humane and intelligent. And to be able to lead that cast directed by Hetty McDonald with no sense of fear or self-doubt I just knew that I could do it and then being able to do scenes with Matthew McFadden is like just a dream he's, I've been able to work with him three times and I think he's probably probably my favorite scene partner don't want to I mean but I'm going to say that just today because can, <laughs> he's extraordinary um and then and then again there was another moment like I did Black Mirror and I loved that and I loved working with Charlie Brooker and then also Rosmer's Home, which is a play that I did just before Mission Impossible with Ian Rickson, written by Duncan McMillan. And it's such a phenomenal play. And I got to do 101 episodes, uh, 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 what is it, runs of it, <laughs> every night and, um, and feel so energized by it, you know. So the personal experience of so-called success is so, you know, so can be so different to other people's. Yeah, that's why I love bringing that question up over and over because the definition of success is different to everybody out there and everybody's definition is is personal and it's right for them. And that's all yes. that matters. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I, I do want to lean into Agent Carter and kind of go back to what you were you were saying while we were playing dicey questions here, because, you know, I'm, I'm willing to bet the cancellation of a show like that is disappointing. But in this industry, the ups and downs do come with valuable learning curves. So what are some, you know, takeaways that maybe influenced how you picked projects going forward based on how that show and its end was handled? 
Yeah, well, it, it's, it's a strange one because I think it took me kind of quite a number of years to work out why it had been cancelled given its critical acclaim. And it's still ongoing critical acclaim. When I often see it, they, my friends or people text me and say, like, she's like, your show is number one when they ranked it of Marvel shows. And I'm, and I've had loads of people on social media going, why aren't you doing more? And I'm like, ask Marvel. I don't know. I think it's also to do again, I suppose, my my conversation earlier about network television. Um, uh, that that it's also there's so many sort of moving parts to the business side of something that you're not as an actor in control of. And there's like polit background politics. And I think, you know, Marvel film had split from Marvel TV and I had come from Marvel film. And so I got kind of caught in the crossfire of that and our show wasn't really publicized. It was kind of the slot was at an odd time. It was limited compared to the other longer shows. So there's all these things that weren't in my control. And really when I was doing the show, I was not really thinking about them. I think now I would be much more um, engaged in the business side of it so that I feel like I could protect the show that I was in um, and advocate for it and really question the quality of the writing at times or questioning where the marketing was going and, um, and how visible it could be. But back then, you know, I was just kind of just play her and have an amazing time with this ensemble. Um, so that's, I think for sure, I've learned, I've learned about that. It's yeah. been really interesting having conversations with a lot of actors who become producers, because on the one hand, you don't want to feel the need to become a producer just to protect the project you're working on. But then on the other hand, I get very excited when I hear about actors I admire wearing multiple hats to make sure that thing is brought to screen in the best possible way. Yeah, totally. What's well, why you know Tom Cruise is such an inspiration because he's a one man studio. He does the man does it all because he's invested in every element of of it from conception to script to lighting to costume design to hair and makeup to the stunt work to the training program that goes into it to then the marketing of it afterwards you know he's and i'm like oh yeah it, it's almost seeing him has given me permission to go if you if if i'm if i can see things that are going on and i have i can have input in other ways speak out you know for the for the sake of the the story being well served rather than just my role in it and that is that takes a bit of time and experience to be able to start going, OK, I know I can do my job. That's done. So where else can I grow from this mm -hmm. and how how much more of a kind of producerial hat can I put on? Going back to uh, Agent Carter briefly, because I want to touch on the idea that it has a lasting impact. When I told uh, when I told my colleagues that I was having you on Collider Ladies Night, they, they sent me like a whole bunch of Agent Carter questions that I must ask you. We don't have time to get to all of them. So I chose one that I know means a lot to everybody out there who is a fan of the show. Have you ever imagined how things might have panned out if the story had continued to explore the Peggy and Daniel relationship for a little further? What season three and maybe beyond would have held for them? Yeah, well, I, I, I there was, I remember when we were filming, I think it was Winter Soldier. When she's on her, she's in bed, she's 96, and I love doing that. And she's like, it's been so long. When I speak to Chris sometimes, he's like, it's been so long. He loves that. He loved that delivery. Um, but I remember when I was filming it, there was a there was a picture. The prop master had put a framed photograph on Peggy's bedside of Peggy with her husband and her children. And Luis de Esposito ran over just before we started rolling going take that out we don't know yet we don't want to limit ourselves by kind of suggesting this is who she's married 
And so that was that was taken out. And I thought, oh, okay, that's really interesting. And so that I think what they're so good at is they're they're so good at giving the audience what they want and exceeding the expectations. And I think that's why they're always kind of aware of kind of um, just just feeding the amount of information that the audience need to know to keep engaged, but also delighting them and surprising them with with new information. So, I mean, I would hope my my hope is that that tagline that I love that everyone quotes back to me, you know, I know my value. Anyone else's opinion doesn't really matter. What a great thing to be spreading, you know, to, for particularly younger people watching that going, oh, you can be brilliant at your job and not get the credit that you deserve. But that doesn't stop you from cultivating a strong sense, a healthy sense of self-esteem. And I love that. However, I now would want her and I would love that to have been developed, that she does get that validation because getting the validation from the outside world opens up opportunities for her to have more agency in the jobs that she's doing and the role that she's playing. So I would hope that, you know, the progression of her character just becomes someone who isn't sort of, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll fight the good fight from the office and I, I know that I'm good. And going like, oh, let's have that in more front and center now. And I think that seems to be what audiences are wanting from characters like her. I love that answer. I feel like I'm just going to adopt that into my own headcanon and just assume that is how everything went precisely for her. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Mission Impossible, full force now. So I was watching the interview you did with my colleague, Steve, at the premiere, and you had mentioned that when you first signed on for the film, you weren't given a a specific well-defined character per se, but rather through your collaboration with that team, you were going to find the character, the character was going to emerge. So it made me wonder, during that process, do you remember the specific thing that happened or the idea that came up that put her into focus the most for you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think a couple of things. Chris McQuarrie had seen me in the, in the play The Pride at Trafalgar Studios in London 10 years ago. And I met him afterwards and he'd said, he said there was a moment in the play that he went, that thing that she does that she can access, I, I want it. I want to, I want it in a movie. I just don't know in what capacity. And, and I'm, he said that to me quite early on when, when I got the role, he was like, you know, I've been, you know, we want to be trying to find this moment for six years now. It's now been obviously 10 years because the film took four years to make. Um, and I, and I remember that moment was, um, was like a, is a moment of vulnerability for the character in the play that's really held in a very silent moment. And it's, it's, it's really beautiful. And Jamie Lloyd kind of would create this space where he'd go every night, dare yourself to hold on to that emotion without saying anything and like let the audience in that silence just have that experience of that, what that character's internal world is. So I'd sort of bravely every night try and extend that pause, but not so much that it became like indulgent or people getting like, come on. And, and it was a timing that I just, I could fa- find throughout the run created the most, the biggest impact. And so for McHugh, I think there was, it was quite into, into filming where my character Grace is quite a vulnerable moment. And, and I, and I think it was kind of in instinctively, I just, I started becoming much more engaged with the cost of what Grace had been through, but also the cost of what it is to be hypervigilant and hyper independent in the world. And I found like her wound 
And what that wound is, is if we are as human beings, our survival is dependent on connection and attachment to our primary caregivers, then to our family, our friends, our society, our tribe, then the person who is running away from any possibility of connection because they don't trust other human beings is coming from a place of survival that's be very lonely and quite painful to exist in. And so for me, that discovering that grace, grace is in a conflict was the thing that she and any human being wants the most in the world, which is friendship and kinship is the thing that she's also most scared of, therefore won't allow herself to feel it or trust it creates this like emotional impact. And that to me was like, oh, that's the heart of her. And then I was able to sort of work backwards and all the fun stuff and all the levity and the action stuff was sort of on the surface, but then underneath there was something more psychologically astute at play going on. And that's when I felt like, okay, I think I know who Grace is. What a beautiful way to describe that. And I'm not just saying this because you just said that, but but I feel that through your performance and to have that kind of quality in a character in a movie like this is so incredibly important to making all of these wild stunts feel, feel grounded and real and makes you care about the characters and feel the vulnerability in the situation. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I have to I have to talk about the the handcuff driving scene because that is one of many incredible set pieces in this movie. Two two about the driving. One, I I heard you say somewhere that your level of being able to drive competently increased. So what is something you learned while making the movie that is actually influencing your everyday driving, but then also that you studied drifting? So what is something that surprised you in terms of what it takes to drift a car? So I, I was, I trained for five months with Wade Eastwood on a racetrack here in the UK and I would train with him and then I'd go into the studio and do the fight stuff and, uh, you know, knife work and sleight of hand tricks and Tom and McHugh would be overseeing all of that. So they'd be checking in on me. They would be making sure I was you know, comfortable and I was enjoying it. And I got every, like all the support I needed to sustain that level of kind of athleticism. And then, so I am now, I feel, I feel like I'm a good driver. My friends and family think I'm quite erratic. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, I'm perfectly in control. They're like, yeah, but you're not in an action film now. We're just going to the shops. Like, can you just slow down? I'm like, yeah, but I'm within the speed limit. It goes, yeah, but you're sort of going from naught to 25 or 35 really, really fast. I'm like, well, it's I, okay. So I'm not, you know, I wouldn't say I was the best driver because of that, but in, a, in an emergency situation, I could get a pregnant woman to the hospital in time, I think. I could dodge. Um, and then the drifting was, you know, that 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 came out quite quickly. You know, Wade Eastwood is always looking to see where my natural abilities lay and therefore going, okay, you, like, Pom Klementiev is amazing at high, high kicks. And so, and she'd, have, and she'd been studying martial arts for many, many years. So that, it became a very specific sort of stylized fighting skill she was brilliant at. For me, drifting came really quickly. And uh, Wade was like, we're gonna use this. So anything that was kind of, that I was getting to kind of a high level of competency in, in they were like, okay, you, we'll use that in the movie. And so I remember kind of early on being in the car and uh, had, had just, just worked out the knack of drifting. And Tom came out of nowhere in a helicopter and like flew down unexpected 
and I looked at the kind of the wing mirror and Wade was like, oh yeah, yeah, he, he, he just wants, he's just coming to say hi, like play with him, like he'll follow you and you follow the car. And I'm going, oh my God. And he's like piloting the helicopter going like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine, this is intense. But I felt so safe doing it. And I think what, what working with those guys taught me is that you can perform recklessness but be very in control of what you're doing. And I would need that. So by the time that we got to Rome, where the, these obstacles of actually, you know, people around old buildings, there's higher stakes, these are real stunts, that we could do it. Uh, we could have a, 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 a freedom to our performance. We could try lots of different things because we had the, the foundation of that discipline down. And that took, that's the laborious task of just drills and what we call getting enough seat time in. And, you know, be times when I come back, back from the racetrack or from like a stunts fight and I'd be so frustrated because I was like, I wanted to learn it and get it quicker than I was actually getting it. And that all of that just takes time for your body to adjust and to have the muscle memory working. That is like true movie magic, that sequence. It, re it really is something else. And the same descriptor could apply to this next sequence I need to bring up. It is the dining car scene in the, the big train set piece. Just I'll curse for this. Holy, holy shit. How did you do that? I could spend an entire ladies night conversation and then some just breaking down that entire scene. So in order to get to a little piece of it right now of everything that happens in that particular scene, do you remember the single most challenging beat within it a particular stunt move or something like that that would often trip the two of you up for yeah i mean it never tripped tom up because he's <laughs> just he's masterful at it um but there was so you know when without giving too much spoilers away she's hanging she's like on the, on the in the vertical train that's going on it's over a ravine and the piano is about to fall and he's going jump. And this follows a moment where he has, he has he's already jumped across and he's going jump. And I'm just, you can see, I, like she's got adrenal fatigue. She's, she knows that if she doesn't, she's gonna die, but she's also gonna take a risk by jumping because she might not make it. And it, it follows a moment where, which was, was improvised and Tom really loved it and kept on, you know, asked me to, to do it again and again of when he goes, do you trust me? And I, the first time I did it, I just went, yeah. <laughs> and and that was all real. You know, I felt like I trusted him, but I didn't know if Grace would in this moment. Like it was just, it was so much. And then take after take, having to jump across that train carriage. And it's, it's big. Like it's a huge cylinder. It's this vessel, hollow vessel. And I have to jump and he catches me with one arm and holds my body weight as a piano goes rushing past us. And it was timed, it was timed safely. So I was given a couple of like a cue where my the platform I was on kind of, kind of starts to break and it would always scare me because that would go and I'd kind of lose my footing and then I'd have to jump and I'd have no choice. I couldn't decide in my own time when to do it. Like you go and you don't think about it. And that, that, that would always take my breath away. How is there not an Academy Award category for stunt work? I just can't I agree. the life of me process that. They are extraordinary. You know, not only are they highly skilled physically, but they're also, it's not just about fighting, it's selling the fight and the story within the fight. That's, it's more of a dance, it's balletic. 
I think I absolutely think they need more recognition. Those that and casting directors for exactly. sure. If you didn't say that, I was about to. I'm going to end with a question or two, maybe about part two, and I'll put up the spoiler warning for this, so nobody should be watching it unless they've seen Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. And I know these questions are probably difficult for you to answer because you are actually filming that movie, and I don't want you to have to reveal anything too soon. But first, I'll give you the softball question. Will we learn Grace's real name in the second part? I asked McHugh this and he just kind of looked at me and he was like, he gave me this look where he goes, ask me no questions, I tell you no lies. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. Yeah, so I wish I knew, but it's wise that they're keeping me in the dark as well because it keeps me on my toes too. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, here, here's my, my meteor question that you might be able to tease here. So I'm sure Grace is going to have a lot to learn as far as the skills required to be an IMF agent, something that is required of all agents. But what is something one of a kind to like who she is and how she operates that will bring something different to the IMF, something that it gets from no other agent employs? Um, I think that she's, you know, she's not one thing. So she's, you can't label her as the femme fatale, that she uses seduction as a tactic to manipulate people when she's pick, picking their pocket, as she does with Ethan at the beginning. And some people are like, oh, is there a romantic agenda between them? And I, the way that I see it is that she's, she's sussing someone out and she knows that she can use her own you know, seductive energy to get what she needs or you know, have doors open for her because uh, she's clever. And so, but... So that's not sort of, and that's not her running agenda with Ethan throughout the whole film, which I love in an action film, that you don't have someone who is either the badass woman who's, because that's that's still, a, that's one facet of a well-written character, but you want more than that. You want nuance. And so you want the audience to feel like she's relatable and the audience are kind of watching the experience through her eyes a little bit. Um, so, I, yeah, and I would, I would say also that again, she, because she's hypervigilant, she's always looking around to see where the exit is, where the danger is, who she can pickpocket, who she can put something, she, who she can put to pocket, which was a kind of a whole new world of, for me, discovery of going, how handy, if you don't want to hold something, just slip it into the pocket of the person beside you and go buy for it later and then none the wiser. Um, so just having that sort of playfulness and that mischievousness I love bringing to her. Do you do that for fun now? <laughs> I would, but I'm a terrible liar. So I would, I, if I did it, I would then tell the person immediately. <laughs> I feel like this is a bad suggestion, but you should totally like take the rest of this press tour and like, I don't know, like sign things or put like notes in people's pockets, attending events and premieres and they go home and they're like, oh my God, one of the stars of the movie just- I love that idea. Okay, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to take you up on that challenge. I okay. think it's a challenge and I can see, see if the next, I'll have a screening in New York and then one in Tokyo. I'm going to see if I can do it. I feel like I need to find someone who I know is going to that New York premiere so I can give you a good target. Yes, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know people are going to be there. Welcome, man. I, I think that's so fun. I mean, it's like, well, it, it it's, I'm a prankster. I love playing pranks on people as long as they're like, it doesn't upset them or scare them too much. But that to me is like a great prank. It's a little like Grace was here. 
Love that. <laughs> I'm very into this idea. I must let you go. I could talk about this movie all day long. Seriously, congratulations. This is one heck of a feat from, you know, the stunt angle, but also bringing out a layered character like you do in such a heavy action movie like this is really something special. So congratulations on Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and everything you've accomplished in this industry and everything that's to come for you. Thank you so much. It's been so fun chatting with you. I really have loved it. 